welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, I am Jacob Miller, an integrated cardiothoracic surgery resident at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. And I'm here today with Peruz Agdesadi, who holds the Emerson Chair as the Chief of Pediatric Cardiothoracic Surgery at St. Louis Children's Hospital. And today we're going to discuss mechanical circulatory support in pediatric patients. Great. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with our case. A six-year-old female, previously healthy without any known medical conditions, presents in heart failure due to a presumed virally mediated myocarditis. She's requiring significant inotropic and vasopressor support and subsequently deteriorates to require mechanical ventilation. Now, despite these measures, she continues to decompensate, and late that evening, her condition acutely worsens. Given this scenario, clearly late in the process, what information do you use to guide your decision of whether or not to initiate mechanical circulatory support? And given the urgent nature, how does that influence your decision on the type of support to pursue? Well, ideally, you want to institute therapy before it gets too late. In this specific scenario, we would resort to ECMO via neck cannulation as immediate resuscitation measure. Generally, however, we're prepared to initiate ECMO when such a patient gets intubated, as in our experience, these two factors, meaning admission within 24 hours to ICU and need to initiate mechanical ventilation, predict a greater likelihood of cardiac arrest. So you mentioned that this situation has probably been allowed to progress further than it should. And due to this, you are forced to initiate ECMO urgently rather than place a VAT in a more controlled environment. But this is a tough balancing act. You don't want to let the patient deteriorate to this point, but certainly you do not want to initiate mechanical circulatory support if the patient has a chance to improve without it. So what do you use to help guide that decision-making process? Increasingly, it's clear that early initiation of support, you know, basically prior to any significant injury to end organs, is crucial. Historically, it's been some reticence to proceed with ECMO given the poor outcomes. However, the thinking has changed and in pretty much nearly all these instances, ECMO is serving as a bridge to stabilize the patient and make a decision. In general, our programmatic approach is to initiate discussions of some form of support as soon as the patient is intubated. On occasion, we may defer the decision to place a VAD for a couple of weeks just to see if the patient is able to get a transplant without going through an operation. But certainly for us, the need for mechanical ventilation is of great concern, and we believe at least a substantial morbidity from the required sedation and all the other measures that go along with that. Most importantly, though, the appearance on echo or you know, specific echo parameters really bear no uh, impact on our decision to whether or not we should institute support. It's all based on the clinical picture. When initiating ECMO, what is your general approach? Do you prefer percutaneous when possible? And at what size do you have to consider a cutdown of the carotid and internal jugular? Basically, for neonates and infants, neck cannulation is a typical approach, though some have described some other creative approaches. And, you know, on occasion, we've done central cannulation. We always do a cutdown on the neck uh, for VA cannulation. Um, Once you reach the adolescent age, then we convert to peripheral or groin cannulation. It's our routine practice to combine this with some sort of uh, distal perfusion cannula in the leg, usually a small, small cordis catheter, if you will, to perfuse the lower extremity. I prefer to usually place one catheter in one groin and the other, like the venous in one leg and the arterial in the other, just to avoid further problems with perfusion of that extremity from venous obstruction. In an emergency, well, we consider percutaneous, like, you know, just sort of like a, over a needle wire, seldom your technique. And for venous, um, we're pretty comfortable with that. But for the arterial side, if it's not emergent, we'd rather do a cut down. 
makes it easier to repair and remove the cannula if and when that time comes. Also, it's really hard to feel the pulses at times in these patients, and you don't want to end up with a femoral injury in the patient, especially in an emergent situation. The fact that they're going to be heparinized later, it just increases the risk of potential retroperitoneal bleeds or other complications related to that. So it seems like, given the option, you would choose to pursue a VAD over ECMO in most situations. What advantages do you think a VAD offers over ECMO? Well, I think the data is pretty clear that in general, you can't support patients for extended periods of time with ECMO, especially or specifically really the VA ECMO or venoarterial ECMO. It obviously poses some challenges with rehab and ambulation. And really with ECMO, you have the oxygenator, which is additional exposure and source of inflammation that's not necessary if, if it's not a gas exchange issue. In general, ECMO patients also go through a fair amount of bloodletting from laboratory tests to fine-tune the anticoagulation, and that can be really problematic for a patient that's potentially being considered for a transplant. So clearly, VAD, when feasible, is superior to ECMO. Having said that, there are circumstances, such as when you have biventricular dysfunction, that ECMO is a better option, especially in really small babies where placement of a BIVAD becomes challenging. Also, with ECMO, you can ignore potential intracardiac shunts, which can be a factor in patients with congenital heart disease. Now, in the given scenario, you had to consider ECMO, but obviously a VAD offers some significant advantage that you've already mentioned. When do you start to think about transitioning from ECMO support to VAD implant? That's a tough question. I would say typically if we don't see improvement in cardiac function after about a week, would start thinking about converting to VAD if possible. Hopefully by then there's further clarity of whether the patient is a transplant candidate or not. That can sometimes be sticky because the fact is you don't want to do a VAD in a pediatric patient particularly that you clearly know is not a candidate for transplant as basically is the fact that we don't have destination therapy currently in, in, in a real form. Also with the paracorporeal devices, which is you know a substantial portion of the patients, especially the smaller patients, Transition to the home setting is less likely, at least at our institution, that doesn't happen. So again, having the clarity of whether the patient will have an endpoint of recovery is important. The other part of the equation is whether there's been sufficient end organ recovery before a second insult from a bypass run or any surgery that's required for VAD placement. I'm always particularly concerned with renal function, as I'm biased to think that it really impacts the potential for development of right heart failure, which then further complicates the management of the kid after the VAD placement. What is your general operative approach for VAD implantation into this patient who has normal anatomy? Pretty much, um, I would say, 100% of the time, we do this through a sternotomy. Um, we've talked about some of the minimally invasive approaches that folks have de- described in the adult literature, but in general, it's difficult to imp- um, implement for the non-adolescent pediatric patient. And the smaller babies have a pretty low threshold for stopping the heart for placing the arterial cannula on the ascending aorta. I think um, kinking the root and hence the coronary supply to myocardium is really worse than just, um, say, 10 to 15 minute cross clamp in terms of the RV function afterwards. So otherwise, for the rest of it, like for the apical cannulation, we perform it like most folks with the heart beating on pump. For the single ventricle patients, we don't cannulate the ventricles and basically configure a common atrium to neo-aorta approach, and we can do that actually with just ECMO support or sometimes without any support at all. So it makes it relatively easy because we don't have to lift up the heart. Now, our patient was the size of a typical six-year-old. In her, what type of VAD do you prefer to use and why? Well, it depends. Um, We've placed HVAD or the heartware HVAD, I should say, in a child as small as two years old. And obviously, this is all, I should preface, is off-label use. And and a lot of pediatric centers are now doing that. um, And it has the attraction of being able to basically intra intra 
corporeal and having the kids be able to go home. So if that's possible based on the child's size and heart, um, you know, anatomy, etc., and there's no significant concerns with regard to needing RVAD, we'll give it um, serious consideration. Otherwise, most of the time we use the Berlin LVAD um, for a scenario like this. It works well, and the only issue is the patient has to stay in hospital while waiting for transplant. Now, given some of the recent changes in the listing status, um, it's not the worst thing, though. But if the patient was smaller, say a one-year-old, what type of VAD would you typically utilize? And what is the measurement and cutoff that you usually use? For that small child, we would go with the Berlin cannulas and either connect to the Berlin heart, um, you know, the pump, or the Centromag. Um, now, although heart where HVAD is really approved only down to BSA of 1.5, we and others have successfully used it in, in patients as low as a BSA of 0.7. Um, we don't rely on BMI, and we've had, unfortunately, a number of morbidly obese patients who've successfully been bridged with HVAD to transplant, and then in the smaller chin children, so basically under 0.7 BSA, we consider either the Berlin system or the Centromag. So now, our theoretical patient has done very well after her VAD implant. She's recovered and continues to work with physical therapy. She remains on the transplant list. How does the presence of VAD or ECMO impact your donor selection? I think that's a great question, Jacob. You know, historically, I think the mindset had been if you're on ECMO, you're desperate, and folks would accept sometimes organs that they wouldn't otherwise. To me, that was always counterintuitive, as I believe those are the patients that need the best hearts, and nothing's worse than doing a transplant only to end up on ECMO on the other side. And with the VAT patients in particular, I expect a fair amount of dissection and bleeding, and hence the need for potentially significant blood transfusion. Some somewhat reluctant to take a smaller size donor, as I believe would have a harder time to deal with the volume load and likely higher PVR from all the blood products that are administered. I know the ischemic time can be relatively short, for instance, a donor that is across town. In that setting, it, you can get away with a little bit more. And so if it's a terrific heart, then I would consider it. And how does the presence of mechanical circulatory support impact your operative approach? Time. I mean, basically making sure you, allot, you, you allocate enough time for yourself. I really think the key for a good outcome is to have meticulous dissection and taking your time and having everything dissected out well in advance. And, you know, that really means that you and the procurement team need to be in communication to have plenty of time, you know, set aside. Uh, this is no time to be fast. Um, also, I believe if you have as much possible dissected out in advance of giving heparin, it makes it less painful on the other side with drying up. So I, I really think it's actually very simple. It's just uh, planning in advance and taking your time with the dissection. So in our example, our patient did well with just an LVAD. But can you briefly discuss the indications for biventricular support versus LVAD alone? And what factors do you consider to determine if you think the right ventricle is sufficient? So as I mentioned before, I first look at pre-op factors, and in particular, patients with renal dysfunction really worry me. Also, I think the primary pathology is, is really important. You know, systemic diseases can be equal opportunity, so, you know, they don't, they're going to potentially impact the RV as much as the LV. So, for instance, for post-transplant rejection or end-stage coronary vasculopathy, so if it's a, like a redo, you know, patient who's had prior transplant, um, I would say it's pretty likely your RV is going to be bad or just as bad as your LV. At the end of the day, I make the decision intra-op, and I have a low threshold to consider right-sided support if there's any indication we're struggling. Uh, I, I'm not a big believer in high-dose inotropes and trying to tough it out and all kinds of stuff that people do to try to get by without using RVAD. I think you get into more trouble by taking that approach. If I'm concerned, I routinely leave the chest open for 24 to 48 hours, as I believe that lessens the chances of needing an RVAD. And I think keeping the right heart happy for that first 24, 48 hours is really critical because I think that usually 
in that time period, there is always a sort of a setback. And if you can just write it out, things can get better. So if intraop, we're requiring more than minimal anotropic support and our CVP is in like high teens, like say 16, 17, and we have to resort to nitric, et cetera, to make things okay, um, assuming it was not a, some form of left heart obstructive disease or um, restrictive disease, then to me that's a, that essentially suggests that in six or seven hours the ICU folks are going to be calling me and the patient's going to be struggling through the night and I'd rather just go ahead and put an RVAT in and be done with it and let the patient recover and then come back in a couple of days and take it out. So now in our example, our patient had normal anatomy. And I think most would expect this particular patient to have a good outcome. However, there is data that patients with congenital heart disease who require mechanical circulatory support, ECMO specifically, are less likely to have a good outcome. While I'm sure this is multifactorial, what are your thoughts as to the reason? Timing, patient selection, indication, more difficult transplant match? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I think all of those things you mentioned are responsible. I mean, majority of these patients have had prior surgeries, which makes the VAD placement a bigger operation, more dissection, more blood products, etc. And I think historically, many of these patients came late to the game. I think that's, that still sort of happens, particularly in the realm of adult congenital patients, and, I, and that's really unfortunate. In addition, many can have additional comorbidities like restrictive or obstructive lung disease that can impact both the cardiopulmonary function from the VAD functioning standpoint as well as recovery. I think a big contributor is our tendency to think of transplant and these interventions as salvage operations, and they're not. I mean, folks have tried a number of other interventions before referring the patient for transplant from the get-go. And I believe that really the right thing to do instead of having done multiple other additional heart surgeries is just you should sometimes just hit the delete button, you know, as opposed to trying to fix things and just go from there. Specifically, are there any anatomical considerations that make mechanical circulatory support more difficult? Well, presence of any residual shunts makes it more challenging. Also, if you have any aortic or pulmonary valve insufficiency, um, and the latter, obviously, with regard to RVAD placement, that further complicates the picture. You know, on occasion, you have abnormal location of the chambers, as in transposition, or there may be rightward displacement and position of great vessels, like the aorta, etc., or you may have dextrocardia. All of these further complicates the operation for patients with congenital heart disease. What about patients with a single ventricle, specifically kids who are dependent upon a systemic the pulmonary shunt? Does this impact your choice of mechanical circulatory support type, and how do you manage their flows? Yes, as, as long as they have a BT shunt. Um, so with an RV to PA conduit, or some people say the sono shunt, you know, I, I would envision it would be hard to support the patient with any sort of configuration, either from the ventricle to aorta or from the common atrium to aorta. Um, and I think it's basically because theoretically it leads to inadequate pulmonary blood flow. I don't know if anyone's actually tried it, um, we certainly have not, but with regard to flows, you really, the bottom line is you need to meet the demands of the body, which can easily exceed five to six liters per minute per meter squared. So sometimes these flows can be, um, frankly, insufficient or ineffective, especially in patients with like pretty substantial aortopulmonary collaterals, as they can end up stealing away from systemic perfusion and then decompress the common atrium or single ventricle and you essentially you drive a bit more flow as opposed to just flow through the shunt which is essentially restricted by the size of the shunt. So we've typically used continuous flow devices like the Centromag, you with Berlin cannulas. You also need to be careful about the effects on the neoaortic valve. Um, so either distortion of the neoaorta or being too close to it can lead to significant insufficiency 
and that can be problematic because at such high flow rates there's higher likelihood of having some sort of root distortion and that basically creates recirculation so it's a bit more tricky in that regard now changing topics a bit what is your preferred anticoagulation strategy and does it vary based on type of support, pathology, and bleeding risk of the patient? We could spend a whole day talking about it. Um, well, I couldn't, but I know there are folks out there who probably could. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I think aspirin is the key ingredient, and starting out as soon as possible is ideal. And, and my rationale is that I think platelets are basically the, the main sticking you know, glue, if you will, to which everything else attaches. So um, you know, once you've got that... Um, neutralize, if you will, then I think having enough heparin equivalent like bivalorudin or whatever on board uh, without getting into bleeding, then you're, you're set. I'm not a big believer in the various tests and measures as I've seen folks with therapeutic values who still had clots. And I've also had seen people who had substantial bleeding just because folks were chasing number. So, um, my, you know, we have protocols that we follow, but as a general philosophy, I believe you need to make sure you've got good aspirin inhibition and then enough anticoagulation to prevent clot formation. You know, with regard to the Berlin cannula, it's pretty easy to look at the pump or the Berlin setup, I should say, and make an assessment of the adequacy of anticoagulation because you can see if there's buildup there. And in our experience with more aggressive aspirin use, we've really, we've had kids go for even two, three months without requiring a pump exchange. And with regard to HVAD, uh, we basically use the recommended regimen, and I start the Coumadin the first postoperative night and the aspirin the next day. And the aspirin dose um, generally is just basically a baby aspirin. And something we haven't really touched on yet is VV ECMO. How often do you institute this, and what is the most common pathology that you see? Well, certainly we don't use it for cardiac support. I mean, some folks have reported for some single ventricle circumstances mainly to overcome problems with gas exchange. The only circumstance that I think VV ECMO is warranted is isolated lung injury of a magnitude that can be supported with VV and not likely require conversion to VA. Uh, so that means in circumstances where you have severe limitations to oxygenation, I don't really believe VV works. Of course, that doesn't stop folks from trying as it has a lot of potential advantages and these days VV ECMO has become really popular. And how do you initiate this? Is it done at the bedside with ultrasound or in the cath lab of fluoroscopy? So, and for for me, as as a general rule, for the Avalon or Origin cannulas, if we're going for the sort of a single stick, you know, um, VV ECMO, I first make sure I take some measurements based on the chest X-ray. You know, these cannulas, especially for for the kids, are not ideally designed, and so I think you have to look up on the reference charts. I've got a cheat sheet that I use to see where the cannula needs to be in terms of the there's set distances between the proximal and the distal hole in the middle hole. So the way these cannulas work, the very proximal and the very distal hole essentially draw blood back and the, the hole in the middle should be sitting in the middle of the right atrium and pointed toward the tricuspid valve. But those distances are fixed based on the size of the cannula. So I actually look at the x-ray and take measurements to see for this cannula, is it going to work or am I going to get into trouble because of how I have to get it and I have little room to wiggle. And um, in our institution, if, if I am putting in the cannulas or if, if we as surgeons are doing it, we do it in the OR and we do use fluoroscopy. My PICU colleagues do it in the cath lab with our cardiology folks under fluoro. Um, I like to do a little cut down and place the cannula directly under vision just in case there's need for conversion to VA, which frankly, depending on whose report you read, it can be as high as 25%. In the cath lab, they do it percutaneously. 
Now, I know some folks use echo to look at the direction of flow, but for me, it, it's, that's not particularly informative. And I think it can be sometimes very hard to actually see that. And essentially, the way I see it is patient saturations tell you the story. If it's low, then either it's in poor position or there's not enough support. Um, and then you can try to figure out with fluoroscopy in terms of where it is. But these cannulas, they really are, have been built such that you have to put it in with their nose, if you will, pointing directly forward. And, you know, you really can't get more than 60% in cardiac output before you start seeing a fair amount of recirculation. You know, it's really important that you put an additional suture to secure the arterial limb anteriorly. Otherwise, when the patient's moved or rotated, you're going to be, you know, people are going to be calling you because the kid's, you know, sats have dropped. And uh, frankly, a cannula can twist away easily and even just under the torque of the tubing that's connected to it. And that can be problematic. And the other problem you have to be very careful um, is the potential causing injury to uh, the myocardium because of movement. So they're very positional. I personally prefer in the larger kids to do femoral to IJVV ECMO, sort of the old-fashioned way, if you will. I think it's more reliable. It's less finicky. And I personally don't think it limits ambulation or rehabilitation. Um, that's, you know, that's basically what we did when I was a resident in cardiothoracic surgery. And lastly, any future advances that you think may potentially have a significant impact going forward? So, you know, Jacob, increasingly the devices are getting smaller and smaller. You know, in the pediatric realm, there's now an ongoing trial to sense the potential for the infant Jarvik pump as part of the punk, pumpkin trial, if you will. It's a, they started off going down the path of trying to do a um, comparison to Berlin, and now they've, they're transition to do a so-called a feasibility trial just to see if the if the device since it's never been really implemented in humans except in Europe and a couple of patients to see if it would work um, I think there is significant room for innovation particularly with regard to single ventricle patients um, certainly the Fontan patients is a big big area for us to look for innovation they are clearly becoming an increase in population patients presenting advanced heart failure and their physiology poses significant challenges. I think that's going to be a group that we will have to deal with significantly moving into the future. Well, thank you. This has just been excellent. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Any parting words to leave us with? Well, thanks, Jacob. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a pretty exciting era. Um, so for what it's worth, my prediction is that in 10 years or maybe less, these devices and approaches will play a part not just for patients with heart failure, or you know, like the kid that we talked about, but rather as a more routine part of management of children, uh, particularly neonates and infants with congenital heart disease, helping them to get through the perioperative phase. Well, I should say that's my bias.